bless them as they have been a blessing to us. But now, Father, I just pray that we would truly worship you, Lord. Worship you through song, but also in your word and the doing of your word, that, Father, we would give of all who we are, our body, soul, and spirit. So, Lord, just once again, guide us, direct us, especially in the section of Scripture you've given us this morning. I pray that you would convict us where that is necessary. I pray, Father, although we're born again and going to heaven, those who truly are, I pray, Father, that you will continue that process of refining us and changing us. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We pray, Father, for the effects of your word, that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Very good. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, we'll be starting at verse 1. And as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along. And there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. If there isn't and you need a Bible, raise your hands and the ushers will bring one to you. I just laughed because Scott one picked one up from under Jim's chair and then Jim raised his hand. <laughs> Anybody else? Everybody good? We'll turn those Bibles to Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, and then stand up and we'll read God's Word together. Or at least I'll read it and you can read it to yourself. Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and and spread refuse on your faces and refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways and have shown partiality in the law. Father, I pray that these things would not be named amongst us, but the fact of the matter is, in our personal lives at times, they are. And so, Lord, as your word is a reflection of who we are, we just pray, Father, for the areas that need work, the areas that need change. And that, Father, we would be obedient to the call of your word. Again, Lord, just seeing who we are and seeking whom you desire for us to be. So, Father, just bless us with the knowledge of your word in this place this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the ability to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. John the Baptist, his voice was described as one calling in the wilderness. 
Isaiah, he realized when he came to the throne of God that he was an unclean man in the midst of an unclean people. Moses, Moses was constantly dealing with a stiff-necked people, and at times Moses himself had a pretty stiff neck. The Apostle Paul understood that he was carnal. He understood that at times the, the spirit was wrestling against the flesh, and other times the flesh was wrestling against the spirit. He also understood the carnality as it existed within the church. All leaders, all leaders attempting to live a good and godly life who is trying to resist the flesh. Working at resisting the world, but understanding at times it gets the better of us. Realizing that I, I have to know, what is it that I am known for? What is it that I know myself for? Is it godliness or is it, well, is it that which is contrary to godliness. Now, as we all struggle, as we all deal with this dilemma, we have to make the consideration, where is it that I find victories in the Lord, and where is it that I experience defeats in the world or defeats in the flesh? And the defeat area is the area of our lives that we, we have to shore up. It was in the Civil War, it was the Battle of Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg could have been the very last battle of the Civil War. There was the Union troops that stood on a ridge, and they stood in between the Southern Army, General Lee's Army, and Washington. They realized that if they collapsed, if they folded, then General Lee would have a straight shot into Washington from Pennsylvania. And so they stood, and, and General Meade, he was the Union general at the time, he fortified his lines in the middle. So they were strong in the middle, but there were areas that he was weak. His left was very weak. The South was good at exploiting the weaknesses of the North. There was one man, General Chamberlain of the 20th Maine, who was on the left flank of the Union army, left there to defend it. And he was told to defend it to the very last man, because he, he was told that if you give up, if you retreat, if you surrender, the South will attack that position and roll up the whole northern army and they will march to Washington. So it was with that knowledge that General Chamberlain, he dug in. And he defended that area and he was attacked with a furious attack from the South. But they withstood it. The troops stood strong. But then they had a little bit of an issue that arose in the midst of the battle. They ran out of ammunition. They had just enough to withstand one last attack. And they did, and they withstood it, and they repelled it. But General, I'm sorry, Colonel Chamberlain, understanding that they could not resist another one, understanding that retreat and surrender is not an option, he ordered his troops to stand and to affix their bayonets. And then he ordered a bayonet charge. It was kind of a do-or-die thing, but he believed in his troops, and he believed in his cause. And as he ordered the attack to go on, the Southerners, who were stronger, had their ammunition, but they were taken by surprise. They weren't expecting that. A lot of them just instantly gave up. Most of them dropped their weapons, turned, and ran the other way. And so they had this great opposing army, the North did, but because they pushed forward, because they were on the offensive, they were able to move forward, and, and that, that flank of the, of the northern army, it stood strong, and Gettysburg became a turning point of the war. See, it's just a few people that are willing to stand strong. But it's also, well, that would be the leadership, but also those who are called to be led. It, it's those who follow godly leadership. We follow godly leadership, and when we're told to advance, we advance. 
We're obedient to the call of those whom God has put in place. And so we see the necessity of godliness with those who have been put in place. Leadership, well, James said in James chapter 3, verse 1, ladies will be studying it in a few weeks, let not many of you become teachers or, or leaders. Why? Because you'll be held to a higher degree of accountability. You'll be held to a higher degree of accountability in the things that you say and the manner in which you live your life. That I fall into that category. And so I'll, I'll stand up here. I'll tell you, I don't live a perfect life. I'm unable to live a perfect life. But the things that I say from this pulpit, you should be able to examine my life, and I better be doing those things or at least working at doing those things. It's the dynamic of leadership. Leadership ultimately is responsible. You're responsible for the training of the troops. You're responsible for the orders given. And ultimately, you're going to be responsible for the outcome. All leaders will stand before God and give an account of themselves. The Apostle Peter understood this concept, not speaking so much to leaders, but to those who are being led. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, it says, Likewise, you younger people are less mature people. He said, Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, or because of that, it says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, it's kind of interesting what he's saying there. He's speaking to the people, and he's telling them to submit themselves to the leadership. But then he closes out by saying, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And so what he's saying as those who have been put in the place of being submitted to a leader, God is going to protect you. You're under the hand of God as you are submitted to that leadership. Now, that doesn't just say do everything that a leader says. We're to test the spirits. We're to make sure that the leader is adhering to godly concepts based upon the scriptures. We'll see that in a little bit, that we are directed according to truth, that our orders are written here in this Bible, and especially in this day, there's no retreat, there's no surrender. If we give up, the enemy rolls up the line, and it's all the way to Jerusalem. But we have also read to the end of the book, we know that's not going to happen. We have an advantage. As Colonel Chamberlain was ordering that bayonet charge, he didn't know what was going to happen. We already know. We win. We win. Praise God. Amen? All right. You should be excited about that. That's a good thing. See, but it's a humble leader who can lead a humble people. That's the only way that it works. Humility and leadership and humility in those who are called to follow. If you bring the flesh, or if you bring pride into any aspect of it, with the leadership or those who are called to be humble, then the whole thing falls apart. It has to be humble leadership that, are, that is submitted to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and then those who are the followers, they are to be humbly submitted as well. Again, seeing the Word of God as the directions that we all have. And so since there is a command to submit... God always places a greater degree of responsibility on those whom this people are to be submitted to. So if you're to be submitted to the leadership of the church, the leadership of the church is going to have to stand before God and give an account of themselves. Because in essence, what they're doing is, God, by telling the people to submit to the leadership, these people are making themselves vulnerable to the leadership, and God's telling the leadership, you've got great responsibility here, don't abuse it. 
Unfortunately, we've seen throughout the ages, man has abused that. Matter of fact, it's exactly what is going on here some 430 years before the coming of Christ, back in Malachi's day. The leadership has been abusing the people. And God's not going to stand for it. Why? Because they're not the leadership's people. They're God's people. They're the people whom the Lord has planted, the people whom the Lord has saved, and the people who God, Christ Jesus, ultimately is going to, for us, has died for, has paid the price with his blood. And so we need to see the value in one another. I did the devotion this morning for the the choir. And choir is very interesting. I did a little bit of study in a choir because I've never been allowed to join one. But there's the soprano. Soprano's not the mafia here in this particular case. The soprano is the ones who sing really high. And then there's the, uh, there's the baritone. They're the ones on the other side of the scale. There's the alto and there's the tenor. And so you have all of these types of voices. And as everyone does his part, as everybody is submitted to the person that's doing jumping jacks in front of them, Joanne was doing all that stuff, um, as they're submitted to the leadership, the one who is directing them, everything's going to work out really fine. Now, I don't know what kind of voice I have. I would imagine, I I don't have a voice that sings, but either a tenor or a a baritone or a bass, probably somewhere along that that side of the scale. Now, what would happen if I tried to sing soprano? I would sound like Edith Bunker, if you remember Edith Bunker. It's probably sound exactly like that. That's not what I've been called to do. It's not what I've been gifted to do. But when you have the choir, you didn't think, oh, that person, they, they sound like a baritone. That, there's a soprano. No, you just heard the one voice. The one voice from the unity of everybody doing their part under godly leadership. And it worked out real well. It was a pleasurable sound that gave glory to God. Now, you take that aspect of ministry and you do that in all aspects of your life in the body of Christ, so that there would be unity here. And then outside of this place, so that we would see others be brought into the church and brought into godly unity. Because what are we seeing in our country today? Does our country look anything like a country that is unified? As we see these riots that are going on in the streets? Now, whatever your impression of the riots are or whatever, the fact of the matter is, there's disunity in this country. And what are they so upset about? I mean, everybody on both sides of the discussion and all of that, they're mad because we're trying to foster heaven here on earth and somebody keeps messing it up. Well, it's not going to be heaven here on earth. It's not going to be heaven on here, heaven and earth at all. This earth one day is going to be destroyed and if you're clinging to this earth, you're clinging to something that's not going to be around for very long. And so leadership, leadership can't point to this world or this life. It has to point to Jesus Christ. It has to point to the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is he who gives ability to mankind so that we see past. We see past the exterior. I mean, mankind, where's the disunity always been? It's been in the color of somebody's skin. And isn't that stupid? I mean, isn't that ridiculous? But because of pride... Man seeks to exalt himself over somebody else. And and when he can't use anything else, he'll just use some superficial means by which to exalt himself. And a lot of times, the way man exalts himself is by putting somebody else down. Now, we're told that God doesn't look at the exterior. He's not a respecter of persons. 
God looks at the heart. And so we at the church, we need to look at the heart of what's going on. We need to look at the heart of the policeman. We need to look at the heart of the people who are, who are shot. We need to look at the heart of the people who are rioting. We need to look at the heart of those who are railing against those who are rioting. And we need to understand these people are lost. And they need Christ. And we've got the solution. Because unity needs to come from the body of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that'll change everything. So far in this church, there's yet to be a riot breakout. There's been little instances of disunity here and there, because again, the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. But it's that which we need to direct our attention to is the battle that God has called us to fight. There are many people of many different races and origins that direct, not directed, but went on that charge down that hill, little round top is what it was called in, in Gettysburg. But I guarantee you, when they were going down and they were attacking, they were all blue. They were all blue and the enemy was all gray. It was very well defined. We need to be very well defined. It's those filled with the Spirit and it's those who are not filled with the Spirit. But the illustration starts to break down. They're not our enemy. They're not our enemy as, at all. The devil's our enemy, the flesh is our enemy, and the world is our enemy. There are manifestations of that, but they can be changed. They can be changed through a spoken word, the words that we have to speak. So, biblical leadership, when biblical leadership is not followed, there's a deterioration of first the family. The family starts to fall apart. Then the society starts to fall apart. Then the church starts to fall apart. Then everything starts to deteriorate even faster. So, the church teaches the Word of God and plants the Word of God through Sunday morning sermon, through midweek services, through small group studies. Then the body of Christ takes this into their home and we teach and instruct our children. As we're doing these things, we'll see it reflected in society. Look at our society. Is this happening today? I have to look at the church as being responsible. Are we doing all that we are called to do within our homes today, biblically speaking? And so that being the case, we continue on in the Word of God. Those color pages that your kids take home, on the back there's ideas for devotions that you would teach and that you would instruct your kids. I've looked at my kids and I've seen how we've raised our kids and it hasn't been in perfection at all. There's been a lot of mistakes. There's been a lot of wrong things that my wife and I have done, but the best thing that we ever did was to teach our kids the Word of God because the Word of God will not return void. And the result of that, I have the most perfect kids in the world. You're laughing because you know that's not true. Not at all. But I do have kids that love Jesus. And, and so, again, not perfect, and I'm not saying that, that that's any kind of guarantee, but I do know is I've got to give my heart and soul into raising my children in the future generations that God would be glorified. And so all of this is built upon what we have open before us, even right now, on our laps. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, Well, there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Our society has cast off restraint, conviction of the Holy Spirit. Why? There's no revelation, there's no teaching and preaching of the Word of God, at least based upon biblical truth. So entering into chapter 2, God is addressing the unsubmitted, backslidden leadership of the day. The whole thing has fallen apart at the point of leadership. 
And so we have verses 1 and 2. It says, and now, O priest, this commandment is for you. And so again, he, he's as if he's taking the leadership by their ears and getting in their face and say, because they've been lackadaisical, they've been ignoring God. Now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, if you won't pay attention, and you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. Now, what are these blessings and cursings? We're not going to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapter 28, before Israel was to enter into the promised land, God gave them the choice. Do you want to be blessed or do you want to be cursed? Now, the blessings and the cursings were all defined by God. God didn't ask them what a blessing or a curse was going to be. But the things about it is, is he says, I'll bless you. And, and if you read through the list that is there in the first part of chapter 28, he's talking about just those everyday things of life. Those everyday things of our lives that can either just truly lift us up or can drag us down. As far as a job and, and, and God providing for us through that job or a home and a household and children and spouses and food, just all of these things that, that, one, that can go either way. And God's saying, if you're obedient, that's the only thing. God's not saying if you live a life of perfection. He's just simply saying, if you're obedient, I'll bless you. But if you're disobedient, those things that were blessings, well, in your lives, they'll become a curse. And can you imagine your spouse becoming a curse in your life? Your children becoming a curse in your life? Your job becoming a curse within your life? And again, just going all the way down the list. All of these things that we value and we so desire to have as blessings, when they become curses, really life will, will fall apart at that, at that point. But the good thing about it is when life falls apart, there's always that one that is there willing to put it together. Again, we haven't gotten there. Chapter 3, verse 7, if you return to me, I'll return to you, says the Lord. And that's why the word of God, it convicts so that we see where we are at because it can be just such a, a frog in the kettle kind of a thing, a slow burn that we don't really see where we are, but that's what's happened here. If you do not hear and you will not take it to heart, I imagine they've just gotten to this place of routine and didn't even really realize it. The conviction was there, but they chose to ignore those things. We have to, especially when you come to a book like Malachi, we have to be a people that take inventory of our life. And you need to constantly be taking inventory of your life, counting your blessings, realizing the source of whom all good things come. Understanding and knowing, where am I at with the Lord? Because the Bible's very clear in both Psalms and Jeremiah 29.11, God thinks about me. He thinks about me. Now, he's not doing so to govern over you for the purpose of judging you or, or giving you a swat on the backside every time you mess up. He watches over you for the very same reason that you watch over a three-year-old. You watch over a three-year-old, maybe when you're in public, you're holding on to his hand because you don't want him to go wandering off and getting into trouble or getting hurt or whatever it might be. It's very unfortunate. Last night, if, actually, Joe McTarsney, he's a minister at Chino Valley. He's going to be starting a church. He's going to be here next Sunday while I'm gone. He's going to be doing Sunday morning. He's a, um, a uh, chaplain for the city of Chino's fire department, and they found a three-year-old in a pool yesterday. You know, and those things, you know, it's just, it's just so hard, and it can just be so heavy. And, and again, we've got to keep track to the best of our abilities. But it's the same way for us. 
you know, God, I can imagine speaking to one of them, yeah, I found so-and-so back in the bottle again. I found so-and-so back in, and again, we can fill in the blank with so many different things. The Lord watches over us, he convicts us, and he directs us for his purpose. But the problem here with the leadership in Malachi's day, and again, these things filter through to the people, well, the problem is 18 inches. It's the 18 inches between head and heart. They have all of the head knowledge of what they should be doing, but there's actually no desire for the Lord. There's no heart that beats for the Lord in the things of the Lord. And I really think that's an issue in this church and all churches today. We can so easily get caught up in the head knowledge, and we can have a lot of head knowledge, but where's the heart that beats for the Lord? Well, how do I know if my heart is beating for the Lord? You know how your heart is beating for the Lord in the way that you treat fellow born-again believers. That's how you know when you have a heart that beats for the Lord. Are you having a heart that beats for yourself? Well, we were all born with that nature, but you really know that your heart is beating for the Lord when it's manifest through somebody who loves the brethren, who loves the body of Christ. And I'm not saying go out in the fellowship area and gaze into one another's eyes. This is a sacrificial love. This is you getting over yourself for the spiritual benefit of somebody else. We have opportunity upon opportunity. We have people of this church who are sick. We have people of this church going through hard times. And as you express your sacrificial love, they're ministered to. We've been able to provide for people's house payments. We've been able to provide for people as, as they've been sick. And, and just in so many different situations and circumstances, how are we able to do that? Well, I can't do it myself. It, it, it takes us all. It takes us all coming together. And so the money that you put in the sock that we pass around or drop in the agape box, that goes towards feeding people and clothing people. You hear that hum that's going on now? It's the only reason we can turn on the air conditioning. It's why we're not getting blown away outside, because we have a building. And so as we come together in these things, that we're able to see the work of ministry. That's why we call it an agape box. It needs to be an extension of your love. That's why I think we looked at it last week in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're told to give, we're told to give out of a spirit that loves the Lord. And I'm not saying you need to give more or you need to give less. You need to give according to what God has told you to do. But that's just a physical example. You need to give in so many other different ways as well. Just giving of yourself for the benefit of another. Well, how can I do that? I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but you'll know when the opportunity comes. How do I know you've even been called to do that? Because you're sitting here right now. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8 says, The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by false gods and walked after things that do not profit. And see, in Jeremiah's day, what happened? They went into Babylonian captivity. So in Malachi's day, I would imagine Malachi, this this messenger of God, is realizing we're back to where we were back then. We're on the brink of being cast away because we once again have forsaken the Lord. Verse 3 says, Behold, I will rebuke your descendants. This is going to spread to the generations. He says, And spread refuse on your face, the refuse of your solemn feast, and no one will take you away with it. The refuse spoken of here was the inner stuff cut out of the sacrifice. It was really the digestive track of the sacrifice. It was something that was unclean. Now, can you imagine, here's a priest in his linen robes and all, he's getting ready to represent God, and he's got this 
stuff smeared all over his face. Just think, if you were going out on a date for the first time and you're, the person answered the door, had taken a shower, dressed real nice, but had this refuse smeared all over their face, it'd be something very disgusting. Well, that's what it is. They've rendered themselves unclean or unfit for service. That inner, that refuse was to be taken out of the camp and it was to be burned. It was to not exist within the family of God. Now, this is also one of those things that are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 12, it says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify people with his own blood, suffered outside of the gate. Why did he suffer outside of the gate? Because sin was placed upon him. But as for today, unrepented sin is that refuse that is spread upon us. How is it revealed in the body of Christ? Through selfishness, through pride, and through people being me-centered. It's an unclean thing that ought to be taken outside of the church and burnt out there, done away with out there. We should be clean and whole before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 4 through 9, we're going to see something that is basically the opposite of what we looked at last week. Last time, we looked at four charges against those leaders who do not fear God. Four things that were directed towards people that do not have a fear of the Lord. We saw that they were, they give him no glory. Somebody who does not fear God gives him no glory. They defile the worship due God. They spiritually and physically harm the people. And then lastly, we saw their prayers are not heard. It was right after the golden calf incident when it seemed to Moses that all had forsaken God and gone according to the ways of the world, well, Moses needed something or somebody who would stand in the gap. Needed somebody, because he's looking at these people, even my brother Aaron, he's the one who threw the gold into the fire and forged out that golden calf as Moses was delayed talking to God. And so even my own brother doesn't really have a fear of the Lord. And so he's seen how these people have participated in this sin. And it says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 26, Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. So in Malachi, we are given godly Levi, the roots of what the priests should be, as the example of ones who truly fear the Lord. Now, all priests are Levites. And so we've seen a deterioration from that. And so what Malachi is pointing us back towards was the original purity of those who originally had a fear of God. See, it was during a time when, again, Aaron, he forged that golden calf, and they were worshiping a false god. They were, there was sexual immorality that was going on, and there was just all kinds of, of sin that was in the camp. But these guys stood upon what they knew to be right, knew to be true, and knew to be pure. And it was because they stood strong that God gave them the exalted position of being the priest that would represent him to the people and the people to him. And so they had great blessings that were bestowed upon them. So in Malachi, we were given again godly Levi as this example. Verse 5, My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me, so he feared me. So what I want to look at today is the opposite again of last week. Last week we saw the dynamics of those who do not have a fear of God. Today I want to look at the positive. 
aspects of those who have a fear for the Lord. Now, keep in mind, this is a fear of the Lord, not afraid of the Lord. We are to have a fear, or if you truly have a respect for God, a true respect for God that manifests that respect through your actions, through your deeds, how you live your life. And the first one is, first aspect of one who fears God, they have a reverence for God. We see it again in verse 5. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The idea is that this leader is one who has an awe of God in the presence of God and understanding you're always in the presence of God. It's, it's to have this awe of God that you, well, you have this constant awareness of who you are and who He is, but what He has done enabling you to be called His child. It's to understand the magnitude of the power of God, which is best seen through creation, and, and realize that it was that example of that power that, that saved me, but also keeps me and also will bring me unto Himself. It's the power to create something from nothing that's able to keep me for all of eternity to even raise me from the dead. And I have to understand the reality of that because when you understand the reality of that, it manifests itself in a wow, in an awe, in a reverence. Our God, our God is awful. Not the new meaning, but the old meaning. He is full of awe. He's full of awe. And full of wonder. I've mentioned it before. When we went to Grand Canyon, we were at the south, uh, south wall. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, south side. And you pull in there, and you don't really see the canyon until you get out of your car, and you come up to the rail, and it's like, wow. It's surreal. You, I mean, you, it looks like it's not even real that's before you. And God is just so much more than that. Somebody who is in awe of the presence of God is somebody who is enraptured by God's grace captivated by his love, enthralled by his long-suffering, mesmerized by his desire to forgive, and fascinated by his holiness. Every aspect of God is grasped by the human intellect of the person who is in awe of God. This is a person who has personally experienced a relationship with the Lord and understands the privilege of that relationship. Doesn't take it for granted, but possesses it and realizes it every day of their lives. The only way a reverence of this magnitude can be fostered is through an understanding and gained knowledge of him or continual time in his word. In Psalm 111, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So somebody who has a fear of the Lord is going to have a reverence for the Lord, and that reverence is fostered through a right understanding of the Word of God. Not that you're just going to read it and have perfect understanding, but it's going to be a continual process all of your life. The second aspect of one who fears God is he's committed to that Word. He's committed to receiving of it. He's committed to doing it. Why would he do that? Because he understands that it's truth. Malachi chapter 2, verse 6 The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin. So, what is it that you consider the Bible to be? Now, the the easy answer would be the word of God, and, and that's true. But what is the word of God? 
The word of God above everything else has to be that it is truth. It has to be truth. If it's not truth, it is of no use to mankind. It's somebody's good ideas. But it has to be truth, and it has to be truth that plays out in our lives in a very practical way. It can't contradict itself. It can't be proven false at any point in history. It has to be truth from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. And every aspect of it needs to be relatable, if it's truth, to our lives today. Now, when Jesus was standing before the, the uh, Pontius Pilate in John 18, 38, Pilate just kind of rolled his eyes and said, What is truth? Well, I'll tell you what truth is here this morning. Truth, truth first, is singular. Truth is singular. There can't be other truths that conflict with the singular truth. I mean, think about it. We've got the Bible. We call the Bible truth. And people will look at Christianity and say, okay, well, yeah, I believe Christianity is a good thing and all of that. And so, you know, it's good for them. And then there's the Book of Mormon. And the Mormons will tell you the Book of Mormon is truth. And then there's the Quran, And they'll tell you that the Quran is truth. Well, there's a problem here. All three can't be truth because they conflict with one another. And it can't be truth for them, truth for them, and truth for us because that's not the way truth works. Truth has to be singular. It's singular, it's whole, and it's consistent. It can't be fragmented. Truth has to be related to every other truth within the Bible. And so there's three main truths that we see in the Bible. And when I say main truths, just three main things that we can grasp onto for the point that I'm making. And it's the truth in creation, the truth in salvation, and the truth in revelation. The truth in creation... Well, we brought in a theory, we as a, a people have brought the theory of, of evolution, and what has it done? It's diluted the truth. I mean, it hasn't actually done that, but in the hearts of people, it has diluted the truth of creation. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created, created the heavens and the earth. In the Bible, at the very beginning, it states a truth. If you're able to undermine that truth, then you're able to undermine everything else in the scriptures. If that truth stands up and stands the test of time and examination, then you had better pay attention to the rest of the Bible. Salvation, wouldn't it be a bummer if salvation, the way to salvation, changed at some point? Wouldn't it be a bummer if God kind of changed his mind later on? And it'd really be a bummer if the, the way to salvation changed while you were on your deathbed and then you died and you're standing before God and saying, you know what, I, I changed my mind, that's not the way it worked anymore. And you weren't able to follow through on that? We'd have absolutely no surety, no peace within our lives. But God has given us foundational truths. There's creation. In creation, I see the hand of God. And I know the God who is mighty to create is the same God who is mighty to save. And then I see the truth of salvation. Because there's definitely the truth of our sinful nature, because I spent a lot of time trying to ignore that one. But at some point, I had to admit that one. And when you come to the place of, that you're a sinner and you're separated from God, you had better hope that that way to salvation is a truth that remains steadfast and firm. And then there's the truth of revelation. When I say truth of revelation, and that we will be revealed before the throne of God, that there is a future. And I do have hope in that future, and it's not predicated upon mankind living in racial harmony or any kind of harmony, 
but it's all about what God has done in the hearts of men's hearts and souls. That's where our hope needs to lie. If you study creation as the Bible states it, the truth you start out from, as I said, is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then every other known truth will fit in its place as one united truth. All of our belief systems that are contrary in creation, what are they called? They're called theories. They're somebody's good idea or somebody's opinion. Which leads us to our second point when it comes to truth. Truth is objective and it is not subjective. Truth as it is, truth is as it is and cannot be defined according to what anybody thinks it should be. So truth being objective, that means you look at truth and you learn what truth is or you see what truth is. If truth is subjective, that means truth is what I think it should be. And do you want to live your life according to what everybody thinks your life should be or how your life should be lived? Everybody's opinion, that would drive you absolutely crazy. And if everybody does what is right in their own sight in a society, you have a mess. What happens if just one person determines, you know what, in my interpretation of truth today, green will mean stop and red will mean go. Well, I hope I'm not on the same road as that person because chances are you're going to have a... an appointment with eternity at that point. So it it can't be what I think it can be. It can be observed, it can be discussed, it can even be reinforced, but it cannot be changed, nor is it open to interpretation. Again, notice that the Bible tells us truth and does not leave room for anybody else's opinion. Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Thirdly, from the perspective of the Bible, all truth comes from God. It has a divine source. It doesn't have a source of a philosopher, of a wise man, or anybody else. The truth that we have is given to us from above, from God. John chapter 18, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I shall bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Well, that would make sense if you understand who Christ is, that Christ is God. That's what we're looking at on Thursday night as we're going through the Gospel of John. It's the deity of Jesus Christ. And if Christ is God, ought you not to hear what he has to say? If he's truly God, wouldn't everything that he say be rooted and grounded in truth? Fourthly, the truth that comes from God has been embodied in Christ Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ was crucified and he was resurrected to confirm that he is truth. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is the way of death. And so really what that scripture in Proverbs is telling us is going pretty deep. There's a way that even makes sense. There's common sense issues that are at work here. There's a way that seems right to to man. Personal holiness and earning my way into heaven, that kind of seems right to man. Doing whatever I feel, this is how I've been created. Can I just live my life according to my senses? That seems right to man. And again, you've got volumes that are written of things that seem right to mankind, and some of them will even make pretty good sense. There's a way that seems right to a man, but unfortunately, in the end, is the way of death. 
Why? How is that fair? How is that good? How is that right? Because you have truth. You have truth. And you're either going to do one or two things. You're going to accept this as truth or you're going to reject it as truth. Maybe you're not going to outwardly reject it, although really you are. You're going to add to it or detract from it one way or another. But either way, you're going to do damage to your soul. So truth, if this is really truth, we ought to immerse ourselves in this. We ought to be doing these things. We ought to be living these things. Unfortunately, we can, can kind of be as the priests were back in Malachi's day. Yeah, recognizing it as truth, but just kind of getting involved in life and the situations and circumstances of life. Yeah, and I realized the truth, and I was excited about the truth, and I still appreciate the truth, but am I all in? Am I really all in? See, Colonel Chamberlain, he was all in. He realized that no retreat, no surrender, that I'm either going to live or I'm going to die on this hill. And I'm going to achieve the purposes because I believe in, in, in what I'm fighting for. Well, this is the hill that we as Christians need to live and die upon, the truth of the Word of God, and not accept anybody who decides to detract from it. Thirdly, the third aspect of one who fears God is his life is marked by God-like character. These truths in our lives will be manifest through our lives. Malachi chapter 2, verse 6, The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me. Now, this is God speaking. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. He walked with me. He lived his life as if God was by his side. Do you walk with the Lord? We'll call it our Christian walks. Yeah, my walk with the Lord. Are you really walking with the Lord? Are you really living your life with the knowledge that God is by your side? Look at the different aspects of your life and the things that you do, the things that you say, the things that you experience. Are you doing those things as if Christ is by your side or you're hoping, hope he didn't see that one. Hopefully he's not with me today. No, I need to conduct my life as if Christ was by my side every moment. Now, that's kind of double-faceted. There's kind of two sides to that story. Now, I live my life. I walk the walk as if Christ is by my side. So that keeps me from sin. That keeps me from sin. It keeps me from disobedience. It keeps me walking that straight line. But also, when I'm walking, I'm living my life as if Christ is by my side, because, see, I'm kind of like that three-year-old. I'll kind of veer off, and I'll kind of go off in a direction I ought not to go. But Christ is by my side. He gets me back to where I need to go. And he keeps me going in that straight line. That's called the grace of God. The grace of God. God's not there to punish us. He's not there to, 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 to spank you when you mess up, to correct you when you're going wrong, but to keep you going in that good direction. And so God's by my side. I walk with God so that I would not sin. But I also walk with God so that when I do sin, I've got the grace of God who continues to wash me and to cleanse me. If you want to know how to pray for your pastor, there's two essential areas to do so. First, that I would faithfully continue in the Word of God, both personally and corporately. Secondly, that I would live a life that reflects God by my side, that I wouldn't disqualify myself from the pulpit, that I would not do damage from the work of God. I'm just a man. I'm imperfect, and I need prayers, just as we all need prayers. 
It's one of my favorite things of the week. And some of it is pretty hard. But we have an email prayer request prayer chain at this church. And you can be part of the people who pray. Or you can have something prayed for. You can have over 80 people that will pray for your prayer request at a single moment. Um, just email. It's in the bulletin. Uh, Teresa, Mrs. Turin at gmail.com. But what I do is at the end of the week, I gather them all together and we pray for them corporately one last time. And it's a blessing to be able to pray for the church. It's some of those things that we know that we're being the church that God has called us to when we're entering into people's personal lives and praying for the situations and circumstances that are going on. And we've prayed for, people are dealing with death. People are dealing with diseases. People are dealing with, with very overwhelming hardships. And we have the privilege of being able to enter into that. And far be it from God that we would ever do anything that would hinder that, that ability to be such a part of people's lives. Fourthly, the fourth aspect of one who fears God is he preserves knowledge. Verse 7, For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This is the preservation of a right relationship with God through his word that continues on from faith to faith to faith. Now again, I pointed this out. How did you come in to salvation, to the kingdom of God? Somebody somewhere spoke the gospel to you. Where did they come from? Somebody somewhere spoke the gospel to them. And again, just think, and that lends towards the truthfulness of the word of God. 2,000 years ago, give or take, Christ came in and delivered the word. And then from there, the apostles went out. And there was no other way, for the most part, that it went from their mouths to somebody's ears, from their mouths to somebody's ear, all the way through to you. And it continues to go strong today. And it's going to continue to go strong until Jesus Christ comes back. And even after he raptures his church, what's going to continue through after we're gone is the word of God. And it's going to continue the work that God has set forth. And again, it just lends towards the truthfulness of the Word of God, the power of God, and the reality of God. And we as the church, how much more so should we be keeping knowledge? Should we be understanding this? And by keeping knowledge, the things that I learn become part of me. But it doesn't mean to, to, to pent it up. It means to give it out as well. And I wouldn't have knowledge just for knowledge's sake. We're told in Ecclesiastes, why should you be knowledgeable? You'll just destroy yourself. And he's talking about just accumulating knowledge. And, and well, who was it? David Hawkins speaks of people who are lifetime students educating themselves beyond their intelligence. And that means gathering knowledge and never able to really do anything practical with it. The knowledge that I gather has to be practical, not only for my walk, but for the walk of others, those whom God has given me to learn. And so let me ask you, not afraid of the Lord, but do you have a fear of God? Do you have a fear of God? We've been commanded to do so, that you do not take him for granted, that you do not ignore him, but that you embrace him. And when you understand the magnitude of the love that God has displayed for you, truly you do embrace him. Although you're a sinner, you're able to come into the presence of God very boldly by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's he, that blood was spilled to pay the price for your sins so that you could call him Abba, that you could call him Daddy, that you could come into his presence. I went to my grandson's house yesterday, Henry Williams, and I was sitting there on the couch and he beat the snot out of me. He had something in his hand and he hit me in the head with it. Later on, he backhanded me into the head. 
And I thought it was funny. If you did it to me, I probably wouldn't appreciate it. But he's special. He's my grandson. I love him. I love you too. I just don't know if I love you that much. But I really love him. And besides, he's only, what, three years old. And so it's the same thing. Although I've done things contrary to God, because I am a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, I can boldly enter into the presence of God. So do you fear God? Well, do you have a reverence for him? Are you committed to his word? Is your life marked like God-like character? And do you preserve knowledge? Preserve knowledge by consuming it and doing it. Verses 8 through 9. But you, speaking to those who have taken God for granted, have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Father, I pray that we would truly judge ourselves, that we would take the points spoken of and the truth of your word and the reality of our lives. And Father, we would truly see how all of these things join together. And Father, come to the realization, the understanding, do I have a fear of God? Lord, for those who did not, those who are responsible, those who have, should have known better and refused, you had some pretty strong words to speak against. And so, Father, again, it's not about the outside, it's about the heart. And so, Father, I just pray that every person here would examine their hearts before you. Lord, we live in such evil times, such hard times, and we'll be quick to complain. But, Father, I pray that we would be part of the answer, that we would stand strong, understanding when it comes to the eternal lives of men and women, there's no retreat, there's no surrender. So I pray, Father, that we would not retreat into inactivity. I pray that we would not retreat into apostasy. I pray that we would not retreat into a cult or whatever it might be. But, Father, we would push forward to that higher calling in Christ Jesus, that we would affix bayonets and that, Lord, we'd be of the mindset as we leave this place, we're charging into what you have prepared for us. And so, Father, I lift up everybody that is here today. I pray for those who are born-again believers, that you would minister to them, that you would bless them and continue to work in their lives. Father, I pray right now, if there's anybody here who is yet to have a relationship with you, is yet to make that decision, who is yet to answer that call, I pray, Father, that they would make today that day. This is something that, if you're not a born-again believer, that you do within your heart. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but the question is, are you born again? Do you have that time in your life that you heard the call of Christ, that you realized you were a sinner and that you repented and that you surrendered your life to Jesus? If not, make that time even right now. Make that time right now before the choir comes up. It's just one last thing that we need to, we need to take advantage of this time. This time is very precious in the sight of the Lord. And so if there's anybody here who's yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, understand what is necessary. Understand it's necessary to recognize that God is and he is the lover of all of mankind. But that holy God demands, and it's very simple, although it can be so hard, is that mankind would repent, recognize that I'm a sinner separated from God. I no longer want to go in that direction, but I want to go in the direction that God has set for me. And then it's simply submitting yourself or falling into the arms of the Lord. Submitting yourself to God is just to be obedient to his calling. 
Everybody that Jesus called, he called in an outward manner. And so his eyes are closed and heads are bowed. Is God speaking to you? Have you been disobedient to the Lord? Have you been lacking a fear of God? Submit yourself to God and allow, just I'm going to ask for a raising of the hand, the raising of your hand to be an outward manifestation of what God is doing in your heart. Is there anybody here? Just raise your hand. We're just going to acknowledge it. I see your hand to my right. Is there anybody else? It's a hard thing, and it should be hard because you're making a commitment based upon the one who's made a commitment to you, and that was the blood spilled upon the cross. If you're in the fellowship area watching this on TV, you can raise your hand out there. God sees it. This is between you and the Lord. Is there anybody else? We have one young lady who's bold enough to raise her hand. Is there anybody else in this place? You're not doing it for me. I just don't want to see you go away from this place unchanged today. Is there anybody else before we pray? Father, you've seen, oh, I see your hand to my left. Father, you see the hands that have gone up before you, Lord. And because of that, we just praise your holy name, Father, that you would continue to work in the hearts of men and women. Father, that the that just wouldn't be a good time or an entertaining time or a fun time here. But Lord, it would be a time that tears the heart from our chest, that we would be revealed for who we truly are, understanding, Lord, that you'll do a work in our lives. And so, Father, I pray for those hands that were raised and pray, Father, truly that this was an expression of what you have already done in their heart. It's not the raising of the hand that saves us. It's because we're saved that we raise our hands. And so, Father, I lift them up to you that they would walk strongly with you. Pray that they would be bold and pray, Father, that Lord, you would truly reign as Lord over their lives. And so, Father, we just thank you for today. I just pray for our service tonight. I pray for all who have come out here today that you would go before them and bless them. And, Father, I just pray for this choir. And once again, Lord, just thank you, Father, for their faithfulness in the past eight weeks of after Sunday service to devote this time that we're able to partake of their blessings today. And so, Lord, we just lift all to you, thanking you, God, for your goodness and your graciousness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?